Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Love it. It is Thursday, which means it's time for Front 3 Q&A podcast. Your Front 3 this week is me, Adam Bullwood. It's the one and only Chris Hennage. Good evening. And Nico Morales as well. How you doing? Very well. Very well after last night. Uh, Spurs playing Manchester United off the park. Um, yeah, I'm fantastic, to be honest. Uh, we're going to be talking about that, of course. We're going to be answering all your questions that have been coming in on Twitter all day. But before we get to that... It is time for Hold of the Week, guys. As always, we've got two reviews on iTunes to discuss. Chris, you're going to get the choice out of these two reviews. First up, we've got Rob the Baggy from the UK. Five-star review from Free. Great podcast is the title. He says, in-depth analysis from the week's football, it gives me another perspective to look at the Premier League matches and allows me to learn more and keep updated with the foreign leagues. Very nice, Rob. Thank you very much for the review. And uh, we also have Knife CFC from the USA, who simply says, great football podcast. Note. I am not interested in the chocolate crying laughing emoji. Uh, so two five-star reviews, Chris, but which one is getting the chocolate? Rob gets it. It's easy, isn't it? Uh, Rob, the baggy, slide into those DMs, either my own on Twitter, at Adam Bowood, or at the front free, and we'll get you. There's one of the Ferrero Rocher. Guys, let's get straight into the questions. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking about this since last night. Uh, Rory writes in on Twitter. He wants to know thoughts on Tottenham's big win last night uh, obviously from my perspective it was incredible uh, I said on Twitter it was the most banter match I've ever been to uh, to be worried about it beforehand to see Sanchez Martial Lukaku and Lingard lining up it's an imposing front, front four <laughs> not so great podcast uh, but to see Tottenham score after 11 seconds to see Pogba get hooked to see Lingard get hooked to see Fellaini come on and get taken off 8 minutes later um, to see Phil Jones score an own goal to see Sanchez get kicked around by Deli Alley. It was just hilarious. The whole thing was fantastic. Um, tactically speaking, though, Nico, you could probably give us a little bit more depth, a little bit more insight as to why did it go so wrong for Manchester United? Yeah, it was an interesting one. I mean, I think the, the, the biggest questions that I ask in this game is the tactics that Jose Mourinho employed. I think to level criticism at someone like Paul Pogba, or I saw a lot of criticism of the defenders, 
um, for Manchester United in this game, I think is unfair because essentially what Tottenham did is that they played a very high and aggressive line. And so what that did offensively for Manchester United is that most of the moves that they tried to um, incorporate through the middle were essentially telegraphed and they were useless because they were either stopped by, by Tottenham because with that aggressive high line, the relevant size of the pitch was smaller and therefore making uh, Spurs' aggressive press more effective. So those either those moves that Manchester United were, were trying to make through the middle were stopped at the very root through that press or when they switched out wide, usually to Ashley Young, um, to try to sort of get a diagonal ball uh, inside on the end of someone like uh, Romelu Lukaku. They were they were just far too slow in doing that and their aggressive high line kind of st- was able to step up and catch a lot of players offside. So they didn't have a lot going for them offensively. And then defensively, there was no midfield. There was, I mean, they had the base formation of a 4-2-3-1 and they played Pogba in a two-man midfield. But we know, we've known for a year and some now that that really isn't his best position. And when you have what is essentially a midfield three of Jesse Lingard, Paul Pogba, and Nemanja Matic, that strands Nemanja Matic because those two players aren't going to be doing a whole lot of defensive work under Jose Mourinho. And there was really no defensive midfielder transition. There were so many occasions where United's back four were completely exposed. And that isn't the fault of those players. That isn't the fault of their positioning. It's the fact that they're you know, Spurs players like Christian Eriksen, Moussa Dembele, Deli Alli are getting the ball in front of them and able to make plays to other players that are on running, the, whether it be the mm. fullbacks or Harry Kane. So there was a lot that Manchester United and probably specifically Jose Mourinho got wrong in this game. And, and I think that's my biggest criticism. It, it did feel unbalanced, uh, particularly that midfield. I mean, when you look at that Spurs team, it, it seemed to have a much better balance between defence and attack. And I'd say not one Spurs player put a foot wrong last night. I mean, maybe I could give some criticism to Deli Alley, I think, in the stands. He was slightly frustrating in, that, in the game, in the moment, being 2-0 up. You were never sure whether the game was killed off or not. Manchester United did create chances. There are a few occasions where Dele Alli was through in the final third. His decision-making, his final ball was lacking, which was of uh, of frustration. But kicking Alex Sanchez for no reason basically made it up to everyone, so it was all good in the end. Um, Do you think, Chris, that Mourinho made mistakes in this match then, as Nico's saying? Is this just an incredibly off night for, for Manchester United? I've seen people suggest this was the worst performance of the Mourinho era. The problem is the money they've spent. It it will take time to to gel in theory. Um, I think what was quite concerning to me was the performance of Nemanja Matic. Um, I don't think really anyone came out of that game with with a huge amount of credit. Maybe Bart David De Gea, but for me, I think this is a, a little bit of a trend that is developing with Matic, where he starts very brightly, which he did with Manchester United. He was um, imperious in front of the defence, just providing that shield that they needed and then facilitating the likes of Pogba to do what Pogba does. But more recently, I've found that he's had a bit of a drop-off, not too dissimilar to when he was at Chelsea. Um, it, there was a similar kind of starts well, doesn't end so well. Um, and I think one of the problems I have with him is that, and it might sound harsh, but he, he was an attacking midfielder in his youth. And yet his feet in tight spaces are not what I would consider that impressive. So, yeah, if, if you're going to run at him, say, from, from deeper midfield positions, I would I would fancy him most times to to take the ball off the, the player in question. If I then sort of reverse that and say, if it's little, or not even little necessarily, but players buzzing in around him, I'm a little bit more sceptical about his ability to, to deal with things. I think he does actually cover the ground quite well as well, but not necessarily 
Um, is he so good when, let's say, to, to use one of Nico's terms, a deep block and he has to try and get through that in, in other ways? I think that's my, my one issue. You know, they did invest a lot in him. Um, and, and this is where I think it would be great a little bit later on down the line to get Dave's perspective, because maybe this is where Timothy Foster Mensah comes in, because I know he can play anywhere from centre-back to, to central midfield. Um, but I do just question if there's a long-term position there for uh, Matic, given the, the situation that he finds himself in right now. Mm. As bad a performance it was for Manchester United, we do have to, of course, give Spurs the the, the credit for such a fantastic performance. Uh, pretty embarrassing, I think, for United in that Spurs fans were olaying towards the end of the match, which is never a good sign. It's, uh, it's pretty much a sign it's all gone wrong. Um, but yeah, fantastic result, a much-needed result going into this very tricky run for Spurs. Manchester United, of course, last night, Liverpool at Anfield on Sunday, followed up by Arsenal back at Wembley the following Saturday. Um, yeah, just a huge result, I think. It's going to be tricky going into that game at Anfield now. Obviously, Pochettino, I think, has demonstrated his success in these big games at home, whereas away the record is is less than impressive. Um, so I think it's, it's a very important game given that we saw Chelsea drop points this week, a 3-0 defeat to Bournemouth at home. We saw Arsenal drop points, 3-1 defeat to Swansea, of course. So Spurs now are only two points off Chelsea and Liverpool. So that game at Anfield becomes incredibly important. I think if Spurs can avoid losing that, you know, uh, the, the hopes of a top four finish uh, are enhanced so much. But uh, we do have to give credit as well to Christian Eriksen, the man of the match last night, obviously missing the previous game against Southampton for Spurs. Obviously a big hole for them. Comes back last night, scores after 11 seconds. Mr. Walker Porter writes in on Twitter saying, if Coutinho went for £140 million in January, how much would our little Dane go for? Um, unlikely Barcelona are going to make a bid considering they've just got Coutinho, Nico. But uh, how much is Christian Eriksen worth? Hyperfake speaking, 100 million? Is he, is he worth more than that? It was interesting because in the summer when the Coutinho you know, rumors had sort of begun, I think a lot of people in the analytics or statistics, statistics community um, suggested Christian Eriksen as possibly a better alternative because he is a little bit more, I think, what some people would call defensively inclined. Um, and he's an excellent playmaker. His underlying numbers in terms of the kind of attack he creates uh, for both the teams that he plays for uh, are are excellent. So he's a really talented player. I, I think I get the gist of the question. I, I just don't know. You know, it's all contextual, what team bids for him and what kind of situation they're in. You know, what time do they bid for him? So 300 what is what you're saying, yep. Three, yeah, yeah, 300 essentially is what I'm saying. Nice. He's going to be the new most expensive player in the world. So get those, uh, get those uh, Real Madrid Ericsson jerseys ready. I think we, what you could say is that he's at least in the ballpark of Coutinho. I mean, I think there is certainly in football a little bit of an issue still with uh, buying depending on nationality. So a Brazilian playmaker is seemingly far more viable than a £140 million pound player than a Danish one. But I think at the same time, what... I would say is that to Tottenham, how much is he worth? I would say he's priceless. Mm. Because if you look at Harry Kane as a, as another good example, and maybe even the Baton and Alderweireld partnership, to me, that is very much the spine of Spurs. I think pretty much any other player in that team, bar the ones I just mentioned, I would feel comfortable being able to replace them with someone else in world football. Um, but with Ericsson, with Kane... With Vertonghen and Alderweireld right now, I would be very wary of trying to replace and replicate that level of performance um, 
for, for a variety of different reasons. But yeah, I think for Tottenham, I think he's priceless. And, and if Daniel Levy is is sort of adamant about keeping Pochettino, about building this, you know, sort of legacy with Spurs where they do win a Premier League title, I, I can only see that happening with Christian Eriksen in the side uh, week in, week out. And he only cost 11 million. Incredible. Um, let's talk about uh, the transfer window as well, guys. It was, of course, deadline day yesterday as well. Um, a record-breaking deadline day. 150 million spent by Premier League clubs on Wednesday to take the overall spend for the month to 430 million pounds. Uh, w. Eb, uh, let's try and pronounce this correctly. Endubayu writes in saying, "Who do you think had the best transfer window overall?" Um, a lot of people would suggest maybe Nico Arsenal. Not only did they sign Aubameyang for £56 million on deadline day, not only did they get that swap deal with Mkhitaryan, but Meza Ozil signed a new deal at Arsenal that's going to keep him at the club until 2021. A surprising deal, but one that I think has delighted Arsenal fans and has led to this, uh, this idea that you know, maybe they had the best transfer window despite losing one of their best players in Alexis Sanchez. Yeah, I think it, I'm, I might sound like a broken record here because I think I've said this on the past few podcasts, but I still stutter to think of what this means in a few years. Yeah, they had some good signings coming in. They definitely probably had, you know, some of the bigger names coming to their club in, in the window and like, I guess, made the most activity. But there's still a lot structurally in terms of how these players fit in, not, you know, as we talked about in the last podcast, just on the field, let alone the logistics behind it, the wage structure, how they're going to replace these players going forward. It's, it's good signing. It's a, it's a good January transfer window. It's probably the best one for like the next six months or maybe even 12 months. But in terms of the long-term plan or even like a middle-term plan, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I think you have to factor those things in when you talk about, you know, when you're rating how good a a transfer window is. So it it was good for the immediacy, the very immediacy, but not for any sort of uh, long-term. Does this mean, Chris, uh, conspiracy theory time, Aubameyang signs, one of the uh, the most highly rated strikes in Europe. Okay, he's got some uh, some potential issues that may have meant other clubs didn't go in for him. But they get Aubameyang anyway, Arsenal. Uh, they get Mkhitaryan. They do a nice swap deal. Ozil, somewhat surprisingly, signs a three-year deal. Do they know something that we that we don't? Maybe that Arsene Wenger's leaving at the end of the summer? This, this, it does seem to suggest that maybe he's losing a little bit of power somewhat. These don't feel like moves that, that represent what Wenger may have wanted himself. Um, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting one. We're always still signing a new contract. There's a, a, I must admit, there's a cynical part of me that thinks, well, how ambitious are you then? Because the narrative to me going into January was he's going to leave because he kind of wants to achieve stuff. He doesn't want to just finish fourth. But now we sign, as I say, there's this almost duality in, in my uh, reaction to this, one of which is that he's lacking in ambition. The other is, is that, yeah, as you rightly point out quite insightfully, Arsene Wenger might be off. Um, I think in terms of the actual signings they've made, that's clearly had a, a huge influence um, in terms of getting him to commit. They've actually sold uh, 65 goals in January yeah. um, through the variety of players. Now, if we take uh, the last full season at Dortmund for Aubameyang and Mkhitaryan, they have combined to score 63 um, and so really it's it's not a huge drop-off provided that Aubameyang maintains for Mkhitaryan recaptures his. It's not a huge drop-off. 
I still think, and and it's clearly something that Arsenal know about, otherwise they wouldn't have made a late bid for Johnny Evans. They've got to sort that defence out. There's that's there's the, no two ways about it. That's the thing. Does do these signings really solve any of the issues? Uh, we saw them get hammered by Swansea. Swansea three one. Uh, earlier this week, yeah, obviously glaring defensive errors there. Surely this doesn't really solve anything, signing a £56 million attacker, Nico. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, I've talked about this, I think, ad nauseum with with Arsenal, is that, you know, as we kind of tried to figure out on Monday, Chris, Dave and I, um, how all of these attacking players would fit on the pitch, the, the issue is still their defense. And it's not really their defensive players. I don't think they need to, go, maybe they need to go out and make a, a defensive midfielder or a defender signing. It's just really kind of how they structure their attack. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, buying these attacking players, by, you know, signing Alexis, or not Alexis, sorry, uh, Erzl to a new contract, Henrik Mkhitaryan, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, those aren't bad signings, but... It doesn't. It it doesn't seem to suggest that Arsenal are in any way going to change the way that they defend or the emphasis they put that they put on a defensive mantra. Mm, I mean, as well as that, Chris, the, the other thing you have to question about Arsenal's transfer policy this summer is this January, I should say, is the selling to rivals. You said it there: sixty-five goals they've sold to to rival Premier League teams, essentially. <laughs> How, how do you see this? Because you could see it as, look, they were pressed into this Sanchez deal. They didn't really have an option. They did well to get a swap deal out and get a player of the quality of Mkhitaryan in. They did well to sell Theo Walcott, yes, to a rival almost in Everton, but they got £25 million for him, which is a good deal. And again, Olivier Giroud, yes, they sold him to Chelsea, a local rival, but getting close to £20 million for a player who's 31 years old that perhaps was surplus to requirements and, and they needed to shift in order to get this Aubameyang deal through with the transfer merry-go-round we talked about. Which way are you seeing this? Is, is it unacceptable to sell to rivals in that way or were they pressed into a situation and made the best of it? It's, it's never ideal to sell to rivals, of course, but I, I do think there was a, a sense of inevitability about it because realistically, uh, buy-in were the only foreign option for Sanchez and they were put off by his financial demands. Giroud, realistically, I, I can only see him going to, to PSG once he kind of decided he didn't want to go to Dortmund. Um, and then in the case of Walcott, I don't think anyone abroad would, would be interested in him, especially um, because of the financial package he would demand. I think this is a problem sometimes that we actually see with PSG, or we did at least a, a few years ago, is that Premier League clubs can facilitate such exorbitant wages for players that when it comes to sell them, they either have to carry the burden of, of paying some of that wage as a contribution when, when the player joins a new club, or they can only sell internally. Um, I saw some interesting theories about uh, wanting to, to keep the wealth in England, so only selling to English clubs, which I think is is a little bit bordering on tinfoil hat time. Um, but I, I think for, for Arsenal in general, a lot of those players, Sanchez aside, they, they weren't doing things consistently for them. They were good, you know, they would have a good Saturday, a good Sunday, but they weren't Premier League title winners. They weren't the kind of players that would drag them to even a, a league title challenge, otherwise they would have. And I think this is the the positive, perhaps, if I'm an Arsenal fan right now, and I'm looking for the, the light at the end of the tunnel, it's that between, um, I think Welbeck is out of contract next year, uh, Wilshire's out of contract next year, Ramsey's out of contract next year, so they've got a huge opportunity to um, reshape this squad in a very drastic way. Now, of course, that won't be very financially um, cheap or easy to do. It will cost them a lot of money. But by all accounts, they have a healthy cash reserve. 
Um, they're a London-based club. Yes, they won't be able to attract some players because they're seen as the, the smallest of the big fish in the Premier League. But I think with someone like Sven Mistelter and uh, the other chap whose name I always forget and I feel terrible for, they have two people that have worked, I would say, at opposite ends of the big club scale. Because at Barcelona, you're signing the likes of Neymar, Luis Suarez, you're, you're paying huge fees and, and being able to judge high-level talent, which is, is, a, is difficult. It's not as easy as it sounds. Whereas for Missenton and Dortmund, it's getting guys like Dembele before they truly explode. And, but, and having the faith that someone showing potential in the French League is not um, close to hitting their ceiling, which I think is, is fair of Dembele. And even you know, occurring the likes of Kagawa for a few hundred thousand from Japanese football, having the faith and the conviction to go and sign players like that. So in a, in a bizarre way, as, as far away as Arsenal look from the current Premier League title race, I think there's something quite exciting about the potential that they've got to, to now try and um, realise with this new management team. And I would imagine without Arsene Wenger at the, the helm. Nico, what do we think of the Olivier Giroud move? It was obvious the profile of striker Chelsea were looking at. Peter Crouch, Ashley Barnes, uh, some of the physical presence in the box. Does Olivier Giroud fit the bill for them? Should he solve some of the issues that Chelsea have had uh, since the start of the season? Yeah, I think he's a very, very good backup striker. He's exactly kind of the profile that we imagine that they want, given the uh, given the targets that we heard outlined in the media. He's a very technically gifted uh, large forward that has really good build-up play and ha- also has a really good conversion rate in terms of the things that we know he's good at, which is heading the ball, being physical in the box, and creating things in the box. He doesn't do much else. He's not a good dribbler of the ball. He's not a very good passer of the ball. And you can see that in his both his performances and statistics. Um, but what it is a bad deal for is for Arsenal, as Chris and you were kind of talking about there, you'd never want to sell to rivals. And with the Walcott deal and with the Sanchez deal, I can kind of understand because Manchester United kind of pressured them into it and they got Mkhitaryan in return with the Walcott deal. I mean, who really cares? Everton are not good and they're not going to return to that height anytime soon, in my opinion. Um, but with Chelsea, I mean, that's that's right or right about their level and they're giving them two strikers, which is what they need. They're going to use Alvaro Morata sparingly, and then they're going to use Giroud when they need him, and that's going to give them points. He's going to win them games when they you know, struggle against a low block. So I just, from an Arsenal perspective, I don't understand why they would sell him to someone that they're directly competing against. I mean, it, it, was it not surely to facilitate that Aubameyang move? There were reports earlier in the day that Arsenal were going to try and pull out selling him to Chelsea and try and sell him to Dortmund instead. Giroud insisted on staying in London. Uh, that's where he wanted to be, so therefore they, they sort of were pressed into the situation. They had to do it to get the Aubameyang deal over the line. Is that, does that make it forgivable? I don't think it makes it forgivable. I think it makes it, uh, I guess, a decent logistical process. Once again, though, my issue with the Aubameyang deal is not him as a player. I think he'll do exceptionally well. Arsenal plays some really good football. If you look at them from an analytical perspective, they create great chances because of the football that they play, and it's very concise, it's very measured, and Arsene Wenger has done that for a long time. He creates good chances. The issue for me is that they already have Lacazette. They already have other players that can fill that role. So bringing in a 29-year-old who is only really going to depreciate in value and possibly performance when you already have a really good striker and you could possibly bring in like a younger talent or a less expensive one or one where you don't have to sell Olivier Giroud to Chelsea 
is the issue for me. And I, maybe I'm not I'm not going to tear down this move because I want to see Mish- Mishibashi. I was part of this sort of merry-go-round, and I want to see him do well, and I think he'll do really well, well at Dortmund. But it just doesn't really make sense for anything longer than a six-month, eight-month, 12-month cycle for Arsenal. It doesn't seem like they have a long-term vision for, for their club. Let's briefly talk some through... Let's briefly talk through some of the other big deals on deadline day. Lucas Moore, of course, moving from PSG to Spurs, a £25 million deal. Uh, very good signing potentially for Spurs, I think. Uh, again, he fits the profile that the club are clearly looking for. Um, someone who has pace, someone who has skill, somebody who brings a different dimension to the Spurs attack. Occasionally, we've seen this season with the likes of West Brom, West Ham, Swansea, Burnley. When they come and sit back at Wembley, Spurs do have... Uh, real trouble breaking them down. Lucas Moura potentially brings that different option off the bench. Um, so I think it's going to be very interesting to see how he integrates into this side. Could be uh, could be a fantastic signing. Um, we also had uh, Laporte, uh, American Laporte, Laporte, uh, signed by Manchester City. Nico, yet another defender. Um, he made his debut against West Brom this week. How did he fit seamlessly into uh, into Guardiola's side? Yeah, I was really surprised with his immediate conclusion or inclusion, sorry, because a lot of the time, and I think this is something that maybe I've talked about on the podcast before, but one of the things that I admire about the way that Pep Guardiola uses some players is that, like, for example, Leroy Sané um, was bought in the first summer that he came in, but he didn't really feature consistently up until, like, the Christmas or period later on and I think part of that helped him you know settle into his environment settle into the country he's kind of it fit with his personality type because what we know about Leroy Sonny is a bit a little bit shy but with Laporte he went right into the lineup and and he performed in my opinion he was excellent I mean he carried the ball into midfield exceptionally well um, you know he's exactly the type of center back that I think Manchester City need and um, do I think maybe if John Stones was healthy because support uh, supposedly he was out with a with a bit of an illness or something like that he would have featured probably not um, but just the fact that he fit in so well immediately not just in the Guardiola system but also physically you know he contested with Solomon Rondon a few times and I think there's no better striker maybe to encapsulate the majority of the Premier League in terms of physicality uh, than mm. a player like him um, it also though the, the transfer lines up with kind of the dominance that City are looking to have in the next few years in the league, which is he's a player that's going to help Manchester City beat those kind of low block, really compact teams because he's a he's a defender that's more than comfortable stepping into midfield and drawing those players away and and creating opportunities. So I was really impressed with him in, in, in the game and I think Guardiola was as well in the in the press conference. So I'm excited to see what what he'll do and, and hopefully play with Stones and play with Anamendi and, and, and be the player that we all think he's going to be. One player who won't be playing with, however, Chris, is uh, Riyad Mahrez. Uh, one of the moves that didn't happen on deadline day, um, it was reported that City were trying to make a £60 million move for the Leicester forward. Uh, raised a few eyebrows, this one, Chris, didn't seem to make sense on the surface. Uh, can you see why Guardiola was going for Mahrez? Masro writes it on Twitter saying, should they pursue him again in the summer? I think... That was a, a moment of insight. That's what happens when I have a new thought. Um, Lovely. Going for him, it, it did feel a little bit like overkill because they, they they were 12 points ahead at that moment in time. They're now 15 moment, uh, points ahead um, as we record this. And I, I look at the likes of Diaz, Ford and people like that and I think, well, this is kind of where you use those places where you give them an opportunity. I think adding Mares to that pile when you when you already have Bernardo Silva, let's not forget, you can play out wide. I, I just think it, it feels a little bit financially egregious. Mm. Um and, and Richards, really. Yeah, and, and 
I mean, again, look, the, the, there's a, a good, a good you, you could level a similar um, criticism at a lot of the big teams in England. Manchester United have spent a lot of money. And that's the thing, it becomes a much of a muchness because it's all just varying degrees of spending a lot of money. Um, interestingly, I did look up the disparity of finances across the Premier League history. And it does seem as if throughout time, um, the bottom club relative to the top club has spent roughly one to five um, ratio every season. So it, it seems as if it's not necessarily uh, a new trend by any stretch. But I think as the sums grow, obviously the the, the scope grows with it um, because there's a, a difference between a, a £10 million player and a £50 million player, for example. So um, I, I think whether they should go back, if I'm a City fan, I would say, yeah, because he's a fantastic footballer. Um, and I, I give him a lot of credit for the way he's handled most of, of his situation with Leicester because he hasn't kicked out and forced things through when... You could forward your argument now to say he really should have if he'd wanted to, to get out of it. Um, I, I just think that, yeah, if, if I'm speaking almost as a neutral or someone uh, from outside, it does seem overkill. I don't think we need that. I get that Sane is injured, but I think this is where you have to start blooding youngsters and giving them more of an opportunity. Mm, that's the thing, isn't it? Zach Verizon on Twitter saying, shouldn't Pep be scrutinised a bit more for trying to buy Mahrez for a lot of money instead of believing in City's youth players. Uh, Nico, I think you're going to come with a, a certain point of view, but I wanted to put forward the, the point of view of Roy Smith, a New York Times journalist uh, and well-respected writer, who tried to put his point of view on Twitter. He said, uh, Man City at youth level have player pathways plotted out so meticulously that they won't sign an 18-year-old left back, for example, if they have a promising 16-year-old whose progress he might block. So it's great to see that despite the fact they've lost Leroy Sané for only a couple of months, Pep's decided the best way to go is to try and spend £50 million on Riyad Mahrez. I know their positions aren't precisely the same, but it doesn't say much for the likes of Phil Foden's prospects or Brahim Diaz's, does it? These are the only times young players, people I have invested in, might ever get chances. It's very dispiriting. Uh, your response, Nico? My only issue with that thought process, and I really like Rory, Rory's writing and he's a very nice guy, um, is that they were in for they were in for another attacking talent before Leroy Sané got injured? They were in for Alexis Sanchez, and yet there was no mention of this viewpoint at that point in time. But now, when we go for Mares, when there's a legitimate injury to the squad, then I mean, everybody seems to have an issue with it. And then I guess it, it, Chris is right; it's a little bit overkill. And I'm not a huge proponent of Manchester City making a ton of transfers. And um, I'll be on another podcast later this week, kind of talking about similar topics. Uh, but there is a, is there it? is. You can plug it. You can plug it now. The team of John O'Shea's, me and me and John McKenzie. It's our new series called Morons, and we'll be discussing this sort of morality, uh, subjective morality that mm. football fans like to kind of impose on on these kind of things. Which is, yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about academies and promoting youth products and stuff like that and that is their intended purpose but i think in the current market of the game that has essentially changed if you look at how chelsea use their youth academy I, I i you know it's not in the way of let's promote youth products it's let's create marketable assets and sell them on because there's so there's so much that goes into 
bringing up a youth player and having them fit into a team that is difficult. If you and I think the problem is like doubly so for teams that are competing for titles every season because rarely are you going to have an 18-year-old that is good enough to compete at that level right away out of the, out of the youth academy. Um, let alone you know a player that's going to fit into the uh, a, a team that that plays a certain way because we would all like to think that every single football club has a style of football and we can bring them up in a certain way and that's going to align right away with the with the style of play that the first team has but that's simply not the case so it's something that I'll be talking about more in depth later this week but mm. it's just strange the kind of morality that we say oh well Manchester City or Manchester United or, or whoever aren't aren't promoting youth products so we should berate them for that when you know Pep Guardiola is only going to be at Manchester City for a maximum of another two or three or possibly even four years at the very maximum so what is it in his interest to promote youth players I mean it might be in City Football Group's interest but it's certainly not his and promoting youth players and putting an 18 year old or however old they are into a lineup is taking a performance hit for the sake of what to appease a few opposition fans and the fact that they're going on Twitter and saying that the, the club should be promoting youth youth products. I mean, it's a little ridiculous, in my opinion. But what was the point of getting Guardiola in, and is it just to win the Champions League? 100%. The, the goal of the club, uh-huh. the goal of Manchester City, is to dominate the Premier League and win European trophies. That is 100% the goal. The, the His you know, influence on the youth academy is, I think, perennial at best because Manchester City want to have a style of football, but realistically recreating that style of football after he's gone is going to be very difficult. See, but I thought when he was was hired, the the remit was to develop as well because this is the thing. We look back at Barcelona and and that was the first thing that he did was he ushered in the players he'd gone to know with Barcelona B, the likes of Busquets and, and, and these kind of players. So... I'm surprised that it's now being reduced to then he's just winning the Champions League because then essentially what they're doing is they're just throwing all of their money at the Champions League. You think, well, realistically, you could do that with with any manager in theory. You could you could hire anyone to do that if, if your support structure for them is a, is essentially a blank checkbook. Um, I, I find that a little bit bizarre. And at the same time, I think with the with with the greatest of respect to you, I think this idea that you know, you can't put young players in. That that's kind of the problem. I don't think think it's necessarily a morality of football fans. I think it's the idea that this is someone that's seen as the best in the game, and yet his style and his success is facilitated by the fact that he has a blank checkbook. Now, I'm sure there are a number of managers in the game that would turn around and say, "Well, if I had those resources, I could probably do a similar kind of job, or I could get a similar kind of outcome." And I think that's the problem: is that, that there's almost it, I don't even know if it's a morality case as much as I think for football fans. We all accept that our teams, whether they are Premier League, Sunday League, have weaknesses. And that the art of football or the intent of football is to accept that and to work through it. So even Man United teams, for every Ryan Giggs, there was a John O'Shea. And, and I mean, look at, yeah, the best example is the Galacticos. It's uh, the Zidans and the Pavons. That was the, but, the way it was But that brought. doesn't... And, that doesn't need to be a reality for these clubs. There's a, I mean, there's a very large difference between, you know, even a Manchester City and a Southampton. If you have the ability through monetary, you know, through monetary gains, however you may feel about that on the outside, to have essentially no weaknesses in your team, then why wouldn't you do that if your only goal is to win trophies, which is the goal of every club? If that's Manchester City's ultimate because goal, because that's not just, sustainable, really. Well, in in what way? Well, because 
the, the problem is is that FFP, as, as nice as it is in practice, has so many loopholes. And as they say, if you put in good, you know, good rules, they'll get great lawyers. It, that's essentially what City have done with its sponsorships and finding routes through that, which I guess to a certain degree is fine. The point is, is that why, why then, if that's what you believe, why even bother investing that much in your academy in the first place and, and bringing through the likes of Brahim Diaz from abroad and giving chances to the likes of Phil Ford if they're never really going to be ready because they're only going to be ready once they've had the opportunity to play first team football. And you're not going to be able to loan them to a club that's anywhere near your level of play or your uh, pressure levels or I would even argue style of play. You have to actually put them in and give them that opportunity to to play. And I look at the City side that was maybe a little bit on a lower level, but doing quite well a decade ago, probably a little bit more now, just before this revolution came. And you had the Stephen Islands of this world, the Mika Richards, the Nether Manures, who came through that academy and showed that with support and belief, they were able to contribute to a team that was comfortably staying up in, in the Premier League. I just think that given how much City invested, given how much I've seen spoken about all of this infrastructure that they've built, these brand new training bases and all this stuff, it just seems a little bit disingenuous to then turn around and say, yeah, well, but we've got the financial resources to sign anyone that we want whenever we want, so that's what we'll do. It, I, I think there comes a point where that, that does start to become a little bit sickening. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would be inclined to agree. I think my only response would be there are going to be a few players like the Phil Foden's and the Brahim Diaz's that, I mean, they, whether or not they're getting enough playtime this season, I think is up for debate. But they have, you know, they've been training for with the first team and they travel with the first team to the majority of the game. So they do have that opportunity to be in a professional environment. But I think in terms of the purpose of the club, I think there was a really good article written by someone that I linked yesterday, Luke Griffin, who wrote that, you know, really smart clubs don't invest in their academy. And yes, City have invested a ton. And there is questions to be asked about what the purpose of that is if they're not going to be putting those players forward. But I think then you maybe look to to something like a, a, a Chelsea sort of youth model where they, they've been really successful at youth level and they've had a ton of players who, you know, won a lot of trophies at the, at the youth levels. And then they've gone on to achieve different things, but not at Chelsea. And the purpose of that is to sell assets and to put a lot of money and then loan those players out and to different clubs and then sell them for a decent fee because they're simply not going to perform at the level that Manchester city is comfortable with. And there'll be the few, three or four players that you can promote over the couple of years. But I, I think that's that's kind of the purpose of the the modern academy at the top level because it's just, I think in my mind, impossible to to promote at that kind of at that kind of level when you have that level of expectation. See that's the thing. My inclination would be to say that we have to be willing at some point maybe to regulate that because it is a little bit concerning. And we have seen it. Chelsea are the biggest culprits of this of hoovering up talent and not necessarily giving it an opportunity. Matic, Dilak is perhaps the best example of this. Been at Chelsea, I think, close to a decade, has never played a game for them. Partly down to work permit reasons, yeah, that's that's fair. Um, but there are other players in his position who, again, still haven't had a, a fair kick. I do think that will actually self-regulate a little bit. And I think you look at the likes of Shalaba, Solanke, players like that. I mean, Salah, De Bruyne, Lukaku are, the, uh, are examples of players, again, who weren't willing to just hang around, who wanted to, to move on. But I, I do think even when it comes to what you say about bringing young players around the, the team, 
you could bring me around that squad. I'm not going to become a Premier League player just by hanging around that squad. Oh, you could put yourself down, Chris. No, I'd, I'd be far better suited to Serie A if anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but you you know, like training with training with training with players like Ilkegunduan and Kunaguero and and playing against even just players in training. I get what you're saying. You're not going to get to the level of the Premier League. Um, by just training with those players, but it's you definitely you do have to be trusted. That's the problem. That yeah. that is, and it's very core with with football. And and I've known players who are unfortunate victims of this. Who in a training session can be totally fine, can do exactly what you want. God, Hosolu is that to a T. <laughs> and yet, when you put them on a pitch and you put all of the extra variables like a crowd and pressure and one chance in ninety minutes, they just can't do it. And I think that's the the thing is that. To to a certain respect, if you wanted to take it to a, a moralistic standpoint, they do owe it to England a little bit. I think all clubs in England owe it to the national team to try and develop players whenever possible, especially when you have someone like Phil Forden, who was so brilliant in that uh, U17 World Cup final against Spain. Who well, then really maybe did. you're maybe you're right about the regulation because without an actual. Without actual an either monetary incentive or something other forcing them to do that, they're simply not going to do that. And a really good book to read, I think, on on influencing clubs to do something that they're not naturally inclined to do um, is is Das Reboot, because that's essentially how Germany got all this crop of amazing young players, is that they completely re sort of restructured the way that player development was first of all identified and then trained and then was sort of in conjunction with the clubs because as you're saying rightfully so the clubs have no you know in the way that i think the premier league works have no natural inclination to do so they have no natural inclination to do something that benefits the fa but if we reject that if we give them an incentive if the process is a little bit different then the clubs will have a, a natural tendency to do so and therefore positively affect uh, you know, the English national team and those that are involved with the FA. Let's uh, move on to some questions because there's so many questions that have come in. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Three, that's a magic number. The magic number. I'm, I'm loath to talk more about Manchester City, but we've got another Manchester City question here, Nico. Um, the question is, the recent challenges on City players are terrific, and I can empathise with Pep as he continues to fight for protection. But should referees be doing more to protect the players, or is these type of challenges just a part of the game, and we're becoming a bunch 
of softies. Um, we've got about 20 questions to get through here. Let's, let's spend a minute on each. We'll blitz through them. Uh, what do you reckon, Nico? Are we all becoming a bunch of softies? Jeez, I got to go in a minute. Okay, so um, I think the, the overwhelming reaction that I had from a lot of these challenges came in sort of the games where we played lower, lower opposition. And I think I can empathize to a certain extent with those players because at a professional level, I don't think you're as used to like playing against a Manchester City, a, a team that is so ridiculously dominant against the ball that you can do things that are rash and maybe not you know, professionally become professionally becoming, but I like the way that the, you know, the direction of how we're calling things is going because, you know, realistically, that's not the game becomes more entertaining. The players become more skilled if, you know, we're, we're getting rid of maybe these more, I don't know how fouls used to be called. I don't want to see physicality taken out of the game as a whole, but obviously, as he mentioned, the challenges against city players are a little bit ridiculous. So I think, yeah, the yeah. referees are doing the right thing in, in protecting the players because that's their job. Yeah, some of these challenges are just uh, crazy. So, um, yeah, I think it's all about protecting the players. Um, Rishab Singh says, which player made you do a 180, i.e. made you change your opinion positively or negatively? What do you guys think of this? I think for me, personally, this season, um, I've actually done a 180 and then another 180, which is 360, on Moussa Dembele. Uh, Moussa Dembele, one of my favorite Spurs players at the start of the season, when he came back from injury, Complete 180. He's finished. He's done. A lot of Spurs fans have written him off. Um, the last couple of weeks, though, he's, he's, he's been back to his best. Um, dominated, of course, in midfield. In that performance against Manchester United last night. So I've, I've actually done two 180s on Moussa Dembele. He can never do no wrong. And then the, the chance were back last night. Oh, Moussa Dembele. And they were well deserved. Um, are there any players that have made you do a 180, Nico? Or a 360? Or a, what's the other one? 480? Yeah, I, I I can't think of any off the top of my head, unfortunately. I, I just, I'm usually spot on with my with my yes. gut instinct. Of course, of course. Uh, Chris, anyone you've you've turned around or turned on in the last season or so? Harry Kane. Um, not necessarily in the last season, but um, when he was playing in the lower leagues with uh, I think it was Leicester and Norwich, I just didn't see it. I didn't I didn't see anything special. I thought he was okay. Um, I remember having a chat with someone. Uh, who does the much uh, admired and at times maligned analytics? Who said no? He's fine. Like he's good. Don't worry. Don't worry about all that kind of. And I was just yeah, I was very much adamant. Like no, I can see him being in the championship in a year mm. or two and, and sort of having that kind of career. Um, but he's good. massively proved me wrong. I've thought of one. Good job. Uh, go on, go on, go on. Kyle Walker, since he's been at Manchester Ooh. City, really impressive. He takes the ball really well. Dave continually it. insults him, but I don't. You know, <sighs> that's Dave. He's a fool so you know hey he left Spurs City but he's a fantastic player Carl Walker um, we've got a question here from Sam Atkins who are some of your favourite writers to read in terms of tactical analysis I'll do the obvious one Michael Cox uh, Zonal Marking yeah. um, great blog great writer I'm, I'm right here book called The Mixer yeah I, I, I said I'll do the obvious one um, The Mixer is a fantastic book I've started reading it's all about tactical analysis in the Premier League area uh, very interesting um, no one else that I can think of that springs to mind at all who, who writes about tactical analysis that, uh, that I enjoy um, Nico you got one? Mm, I, like, I really like Jonathan Wilson you can't ignore <laughs> him he's, he's probably the best out there so I'd say Jonathan Wilson I'll have to argue with that uh, Chris anyone in particular that you can think of uh, the two mentioned are good. Um, Nico's done some really good stuff actually on, on tactics that really? I enjoyed and found intriguing. Um, never, never heard of it's, 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 yeah, it's not, when I come to think of it, actually, it's not a very well stocked uh, field. Um, in yeah. terms of writing specifically, I mean, obviously, Dave does the, the video side of things, which is, is always good and insightful. Uh, yeah. 
Um, but the the writing, no, I, I, there's not unless I'm I'm trying I'm trying to think of anyone that maybe I uh, forgot Nathan. Uh, oh God, Nathan Thompson. Nathan Clark. Nathan Clark, Clark. Sorry, Nathan Clark. He he's done some good stuff more specifically on the Spurs line of things. But yeah, other than that, it's yeah. it's not a well stocked field. Nathan Clark, another fine cock lad. I like him. Uh, Deep line thoughts said, "Who made the updated logo and banner? Very nice, very nice." Wow. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was actually me. I uh, I did a little update, guys, because you know for the new rebooted podcast on Mondays. It's a new dawn. Change of color. Yeah, a little change of color, a little freshen up, maybe a little custom graphics per podcast. You know, thank you for the appreciation. Uh, we we appreciate that, <laughs> especially me. Uh, here's a question from Packed Mouse. He said, "Where should Hazard go if he does the smart thing and leaves Chelsea? Um, where should Hazard go if he jumps off the sinking Titanic, Chris?" Um. Real Madrid, come on, we all know Real Madrid are going to be in for him in the summer, surely. Yeah, unless they get Neymar, I guess. Yeah, I mean that would be. Could you imagine? If the rumours are to be believed, could you imagine the return to uh, the new camp with that one. Um, yeah, I can't see him being sold domestically, so I think Real Madrid is is his only option. Because I can't, I also mm. can't imagine Barcelona would be able to to stump up that money. Um, maybe PSG if they were. Yeah, maybe that's. Maybe it's not terribly dissimilar to the uh, Aubameyang situation where uh, Neymar goes to Real Madrid and in his place, PSG sanctioned a move for Eden Hazard. It all makes sense. You heard it here first. Um, another question here. It is LGBT History Month. So a question relating to that. Is English football ready for a gay Premier League player? And if a gay player did come out, would they avoid becoming the tolerance poster boy that the FA desperately wants him to be? Um first part of the question i feel like although attitudes have moved on and we're we're a much more uh, liberal culture in many ways i think unfortunately probably not uh, I, i'd be afraid to say english football I, maybe I, isn't ready i hear a lot of of stories of homophobic chants still kind of per, you yeah. know sung in the in the in the crowd so i i think it'd probably be a really good thing to have i mean there there definitely have been gay players in the past in, in the mm. Premier League. Um, yeah. It's just the fact speaking, whether they're yeah. you know super public. I think, as you say, it would be a very good thing. And I think, I don't want to say English football isn't ready. It feels like there's there's remnants that aren't ready. But I think as well, it would have such a, it would have a potentially a sort of a transformative impact if a player was to come out again. I think it would be celebrated and I think it would lead to hopefully uh, the changing and evolving of attitudes over time and it's something that needs to happen i think there, there needs to be that that moment needs to be needs to be met and um yeah it's it's a shame that it hasn't happened already and i think that speaks volumes um in and of itself um if a gay player did come out uh, would they avoid becoming the tolerance poster boy that the fa desperately want him to be chris uh, i'm not 100 percent sure what that last part of the question means do, uh, do you have any idea what can you repeat to me sir a second um, I think let's just move on. I'll cut it out. Uh, we've got a question here from RPM who said, people criticise Aubameyang and Cavani for requiring a lot of chances to score their goals, but don't they deserve credit to create those chances in the first place with their clever movement? It's the same with Harry Kane against Manchester United. He had eight shots with no goals, but his movement provided him with these shots. Uh, what do you think, Nico? Yeah, I think there is a very incorrect, I mean, very widely believed, but very incorrect assumption about someone like Cavani, where, you know, they say, you know, oh, he needs this many chances to score, which if you look at it from a mathematics perspective or even a logistics perspective, that sentence doesn't make any sense. So 
the the issue with Cavani is that his conversion rate in terms of the the type of shots that he gets is very very good, um, actually quite you know near the top in terms of conversion rates as we look at you know elite strikers. The issue that I think people see with Cavani is that due to the fact that he is so athletic and his movement is so good, is that he is exceptional at creating chances and getting into spaces where he can you know kind of have a half chance. He's good at finishing those chances and since the two don't necessarily line up people have criticisms of him and I don't think the same can be really really be said about Harry Kane because he converts at a ridiculous rate and he also you know he scores a ton of goals so can you really say that um but yeah I I think that's kind of the main issue there's Gonzalo Higuain was the other name that I was thinking of it's sort of those two players have the connotation that you know they have to have a ton of chances or they're not very good strikers and they just kind of play for big teams no they're excellent strikers this has been their numbers have shown that for x amount of years they've consistently exceeded you know kind of their uh, personal expected goals the issue is that their movement their intelligence their athletic ability maybe more so Cavani than Higuain but their athletic ability gets them into chances into spaces where they're they're getting a lot of chances um they're just not you know Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo when it comes to finishing those things but they are very good there's a question here from left footed but I think we have to leave it for next time because we're out of time but it's a very interesting question is there a subconscious Mourinho agenda in the media most journalists don't like his personality and no <laughs> we've got a very definitive opinion there from Nico but I think there's an interesting conversation there to be had perhaps next week about potential bias in the media something that uh, seems to have reared its head particularly with regards to Manchester United and Man City in recent weeks given the coverage of the Sanchez deal let's maybe get into that next week when Dave's back on the podcast um, there's a question here from JJ James Alwood, just JJ James Alwood. Uh, with the jobs that you do, do you ever fall out of love for the game? It's a very interesting question. Um, I wouldn't say I've ever fallen out of love for the game, but you sort of, I feel like working in sort of football media and, and covering the game all day, every day, it feels like, and sort of being involved in it continually, uh, it does become, I don't want to say tiresome, but you start to. I've started to take less interest in the sort of the narrative elements of it, the drama around the game and the things that would have really excited me a few years ago, like transfers, like Mourinho and a Papa Conte, I find less interesting. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm becoming more interested in more the, the tactical side of the game, where the games were won and lost and the, the, just the joy of football itself. You know, I'm less interested in all the stuff around the game and more interested in the game itself. So I can't say I've ever fallen out of love with it. But I think you do start to, as time goes on, there's only, you know, you've seen so many Premier League campaigns and Champions League campaigns. It's always exciting. It's always, the game itself is is the beautiful game. There's always something to appreciate. But I think it's that drama around it which becomes less interesting as time moves on. Um, would you agree with that, Chris? What are your thoughts on this question? Interesting question from James. Um, I almost look at it a little bit like living in a library in so much as there are elements that will a bit like different genres that will bore me at one point. So, you know, the frustrations of um, my own club, for example, and, and not being able to necessarily escape that because it's it's a mixture of work and pleasure. But I find when those things happen, you can usually escape into a different aspect of the game and, and find a different kind of, of pleasure from it. Um, yeah, I, th- I think obviously it's going to change the way you look at it um, because... You know, you're inside the belly of the beast, so you know a little bit more than, than your average person on the street or you're privy to information, more importantly, I think is a better way to put it, um, than your average person on the street. But yeah, I think ultimately, if it was something that um, I felt was of, of significant, consistent detriment to 
to my own well-being, I would stop doing it altogether. Um, there's certainly times it's been stressful. I don't think that's uh, any great surprise. But you could say that of any profession, you know. And and at the end of the day, um, it, it really is being paid to uh, cover or work in something that you take tremendous enjoyment from and and have done for a long time. So I think yeah, you need you need that perspective on it. Nika, see us out with your thoughts. I would largely agree with a lot of the things that both of you said. The only thing I would add is that you know sometimes you get sick of like the people around it, the things that you have to do in order to be involved on a day-to-day basis, like you know social media and stuff. Like if I could just avoid football Twitter as a whole, that would be fucking ideal. I thought you were saying you're sick of me and uh, and Chris Nika. No, this is my favorite. This is my favorite no, part of the thing. This is my favorite oh, part of the thing. Is talking nice? to you guys. Isn't that nice, um, guys? That brings an end to this week's Q&A podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It's been fantastic to have you with us. Um, do leave us your reviews on iTunes. Simply click on the link in the description of this very podcast. Be your chance of being whole of the week next Thursday. Uh, we're going to be back on Monday with another weekend review. The three biggest talking points from the weekend's action. Until then, Chris, where can the good people find you? What are you working on this weekend? What do you, what, what do you want to plug? Chris, if you're still there. He's not, so I'll come to you, Nico, and I'll, uh, I'll, get, I'll edit that back in. Uh, Nico, for now, uh, what can people, where can people find you? What are you working on? I listened. Well, I'm, I'm halfway through an episode of Morons. Are you? So, uh, so wonderful. You like Morons? Yes, I'm just listening to the one uh, on the football media. I'm halfway through. So oh, I'm enjoying okay. yours and John's take on it. Um, so I'd recommend that myself. Is there anything you want to push people towards that you're working on? I would push them towards the morons. It's a good uh, series that John and I are doing. We're trying to aim for weekly. Uh, we've done it so far. We, there have been episodes on football media, and also we did sort of two different ep- or two separate episodes, but we recorded them at the same time um, on all the managers in the Premier League, kind of their philosophy, and we kind of talked about or not all the managers. Sorry, the t- only the top six because those are the only ones that matter. And we're doing another one this week, as I sort of previewed earlier in the podcast, the uh, the morality of 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 uh, football fandom. So we'll be recording that tomorrow so if you want to listen in weighty i like it and chris uh so wonderful to have you again uh where can the whole find more of your work is there anything you want to plug this week that they can they can read they can listen to i'm not doing anything in public this week um but i would um I would only in check. private yeah, yeah. we'll get up to in your own time that's fine man. check out at k hennage uh guys check me out on twitter at adam boltwood tweeting fire banter and stuff or something um until monday have a bloody great weekend planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 